The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined by Ben Smith, who is the co-founder of Semaphore, which is a very exciting new digital media company. And he's also an extremely distinguished journalist in many ways and the author of a new book, which is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, congratulations on the book. I've just read it. It's fascinating. And welcome to Americano. Thanks. And thanks for having me. You've called it an origin story of of, of sort of digital media. uh, And I think it is. But I thought I'd start by asking you... What's the origin story of this book? How long has it been gestating? How long did it take you to write? And why did you write it? Yeah, you know, I was at the New York Times writing the media column during the pandemic. I started in March of 2020. And um, I guess that fall, you know, possibly because we all had a bit of time on our hands. You know, I was I was thinking about how it felt like an era, you know, the end of an era, like this whole era was coming to an end. And maybe that was a little self-serving, like my era of working for weird internet startups had come to an end. But, um, you know, but so it just sort of got me thinking about like, wait, well, so where did, you know, where did it begin? Like, what was this whole thing we just lived through in media? Mm. Well, I think that's that's what I enjoyed most about the book. It's, it's sort of, um, there's a bit of memoir in there, but it's uh, it's almost a sort of cinematic story about this crazy emergence of digital media and it focuses on Nick Denton and Jonah Peretti and it's I mean what what I thought was very interesting is the way that they are they are the sort of different sides of of the internet and how traffic began Nick Denton founded Gawker and Jonah Peretti founded BuzzFeed but they together founded the idea of pranking causing trouble online and this invented a new genre of journalism yeah, I'm not sure they invented pranks, but they certainly were two of the people. And, you know, they lived across the street from each other, essentially, Yeah. you know, in, in lower Manhattan in the early 2000s. And Nick had been a, you know, kind of pedigreed British journalist. He'd been on ISIS at Oxford, I believe, mm. and then was at the FT and the Telegraph. And his father, who was a, um, you know, who was sort of a senior civil servant, thought he was really upset that he was on the Telegraph because that seemed like he was slumming it, I think. And... um <laughs> You know, and but, but came to San Francisco to cover technology and kind of fell in love with it. Mm. But he had this very kind of dark view of what the internet could do, mm. which is he thought it was the sort of core revolution was that it would sort of rip the mask off the hypocrisy, both of the traditional media and of its audience. Mm. Like both, it meant that we could, the journalists would be able to print their, you know, their real their real and varnished views of what they were writing about, not, you know, the kind of things they said to each other in bars and that because you could start to see what people were actually reading, you could 
you know, if what people wanted was pornography, you could just give them pornography was his view. And, and, and that the sort of hypocrisy of pretending that you were producing these high-minded things for high-minded people could go away. Mm. And this is, you know, these early these blogs in the early 2000s, Gawker, Gizmodo, Valleywag, this, and it became a pretty successful business and kind of a cultural sensation in the media industry um, mm. that really, in some ways, threatened, you know, the established institutions. They could be very mean, but they were mostly... You know, they were outsiders to these media colossuses. They had no powers. Mostly his writers were mostly these kind of brilliant young women who were great writers and and were so far from the center of power that nobody could really accuse them of bullying anyone, right? Like they were they were outsiders. I mean one of maybe the most successful gambit of, of the sort was this blog called Jezebel, which was which Denton had started because he thought he'd make a lot of money from like advertising for beauty products. It was supposed to be a women's site, but was run by this woman, Anna Holmes, who was had been inside magazines like Glamour for a long time, really hated them, mm. you know, and just sort of did this incredible job puncturing their hypocrisies. She started with a um, a $10,000 bounty for an unretouched photo. And somebody, in fact, did show up having somehow purloined a photo of the singer Faith Hill with, with the, where she still had smile lines and freckles. Mm. And it sort of did start to put pressure on these industries to think about beauty standards and stuff. In a way, it's like a very standard conversation now, but was pretty radical then. But in any case, that was this kind of, like, kind of searing, basically dark point of view that Nick brought to it, um, coming in part out of the British press. And Jonah Peretti, who had moved from California, really did not think of himself as a journalist at all, had really come up as a prankster. Like, they were, it's funny, it's an old word now, but he, I think, would have described himself as a culture jammer. Yeah. In the terms of of the 90s. And his sort of exposure to an, this new internet came when he was at the MIT Media Lab play, as a graduate student playing around with all sorts of technology and was bored and and, and saw that Nike, the, the shoe company, had a new promotion where you could put your name or any other word on a sneaker. And so he wrote in and he filled out the form and spent 50 bucks and asked for the word sweatshop. And which was then much in the news around Nike. And um, they wrote back that that did, violated the terms of service. And he wrote back that he'd read the terms of service and actually just said that it should be a word in the dictionary that wasn't offensive. And he'd looked in the dictionary and there it was. And this, this email back and forth went on and on and on with a customer service rep who did not want to do this until Jonah finally said, you know what, it's okay, you don't have to print the shoe, but would you, you can just give it to me without a, any words on it, but would you also send along the photograph of the seven-year-old Vietnamese girl who manufactured it just for me? At which point they stopped responding. And he then thought this, he, you know, was pleased with himself and thought it was very clever and forwarded it to a few friends. And within days, it had gone everywhere. Like every, you know, thousands and thousands of people had seen it. It was posted to kind of early blogs, which were blowing up. And a few weeks later, he's on the Today Show, one of the most watched television programs in America, and debating the head of communications for Nike about sweatshops. And of course, he knows nothing about sweatshops, or very little, but but is just totally captivated by whatever weird force he's unleashed mm. and gets sort of obsessed with that. Well, the two forces seem to be at work, or more than two, lots of forces, but, but there's cruelty uh, is an important part of the of the early digital internet, isn't it? If you look at Gawker, it's it's cruel, it's meant to be nasty. And then there's something you touched on with the Nike story that just there, which is activism. Yes. And are these the, would you say those are the sort of two of the biggest forces that drove early digital media? Um, I, I don't, I think that 
Two, those are two of them. I mean, there is a sort of like actual sadism that you see emerge more and more in social media. Yeah. And sort of these online mobs. I think that was part, but not the only thing that was happening in, you know, it was exciting to do a kind of journalism where you said what you actually thought rather yeah. than dressing it up in a kind of wooden language. And I don't think that was necessarily cruel, but there was a, but it, but the notion that everyone's secrets ought to be exposed, which is basically what Nick believed, did come often with a kind of cruelty and a sort of indifference to people's reactions. But I think most journalism carries some of that. Mm, definitely. Uh, certainly in Britain. I did notice that one of your chapters is called Dicks, and that was particularly focused on the cruelty of it, I would say. That digital yeah. media grew from embarrassing people, from humiliating people, and from swarms of interest in humiliation and embarrassment. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I'm not sure, I, I sort of see what you're saying, and I'm, I, I guess I'm not sure if that's exactly the motive of the journalist or of the reader watching a sex tape, like that's for the psychologists, but yeah. certainly the kind of logical extension of the way they were thinking about it at times was, well, what's sort of the most, the purest form of exposure? It is publishing sex tapes. Mm. And by the way, that was sort of a norm of a part of the internet in the mid-aughts. It wasn't, things hadn't kind of settled out. There wasn't a notion that there was something called revenge porn. There wasn't you know, digital, not everybody was filming stuff and taking pictures with their camera, with their phones. It was sort of this interregnum where I think social norms hadn't totally figured themselves out around what was acceptable. And for instance, Gawker published a sex tape of um, the lead singer of the band Limp Bizkit. Oh, yeah. And, um, and he demanded they take it down and they refused. And he then like, and, and demanded that he apologize for demanding it, basically. And he did and <laughs> caved. And you know, but by, you know, 2011, 2012, it clearly was a form of harassment, essentially. Mm. You know, there was a incident with this um, sportscaster in the U.S. named Aaron Andrews where, a, you know, a creep had filmed through the door of her room, mm. her changing, and that was on the Internet, and they posted a link to that. And I think, I mean, that guy appropriately went to jail. Mm. And the, the thing that brought them down was they posted a, a, this sex tape of um, Hulk Hogan, the wrestler, mm. and um, again, refused to take it down. And by the time that goes to trial in like 2015, 2016, the social norms have clarified and it's totally unacceptable. And, and, a, and any jury, but particularly maybe a jury in his home county in Florida, finds is going to find that this is an invasion of privacy. Reading the book, I, I did wonder, uh, I don't like to use the word wokery or woke, woke culture, but I wondered whether woke culture sprang out of a fear of how cruel the internet can be. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I sort of feel like you see in this early internet scene both these sort of social movements of the next decade, but also a very kind of reactionary conservative free speech culture. I mean, mm -hmm. Gawker was, I mean, Nick Denton, who founded it, was a conservative. And, and, and a lot of the, you know, and I think part of his motive was to be, was a reaction to the political correctness of the 90s. And he actually a lot of this stuff, when you look at it, is, to me, to my contemporary eye, incredibly sexist. Yes. In a way that you would not, you know, even in such an anti-woke publication as The Spectator, probably, <laughs> right, today. But on the other hand, and I think to me, like, I read, my favorite chapter of the book is the one about Jezebel, this women's site, which I had mm. not particularly read at the time or been all that interested in as, as a guy. But, the you know, it just exploded. The, I mean, the women's magazine space is a huge part of media, mm. very lucrative one. And, you know, employ and it just really posed this huge new challenge to this big part of media that was the most, in some ways, kind of glossy, hypocritical, old-fashioned part of it. Mm. And 
you know, and it was, it was some things that are feel like totally in line with the sort of contemporary social fights. They were counting the number of black models in these magazines, which was like zero all the time mm. until they basically shamed them into hiring some black models. And, and along with the, you know, the photoshopping stuff and talking about sex and life in a way that was much closer to how young women actually talked and lived. And it was incredibly kind of exciting and high impact, both for the writers and for the audience, which was huge. But also the writers started to feel that they were hostage to their audience, that, that if they stepped out of line or strayed ideologically, they would be the subject of these kind of fierce personal attacks from people who felt like they knew them and had a level of kind of ownership of them that felt strange and new. Like that's not how media used to work. But it was a there's a sense that you're kind of face to face with the reader on the Internet in a new way. And, and, and by the end, and, and kind of the thing kind of immolated itself. I mean, they, they kind of they wound up getting drunk at some event and saying and making inappropriate jokes and getting essentially canceled by their own audience. And mm. it felt like those two things of this sort of constructive power of the Internet to make change and expose injustice and the tendency of it to consume itself and be you know we're right there and it's sort of you know it was in 2007 and it felt like when i was writing it was like oh this is they had this kind of glimpse of the future yes and uh, can i if i could ask you a personal question what, you've got a bit of nick nick denton in you i think you you disagree with a lot of what he's done but you, there's you're a bit of a disciple of his in a way yeah that's right yeah and because well, when you published probably the one of the biggest moments in your career, I don't know if it is the biggest, you can tell me, it was your decision to publish the Steele dossier into Trump, Russia. And you faced a lot of criticism for that. But in the book, you say you you still, you stand by it and you've written pieces saying you stand by it. And in the book, you say because, you know, you agreed with Nick's assessment of what journalism should be. Yeah, I mean, I came up reading Gawker and sort of applying that sense that you're in this incremental conversation with a sophisticated reader who you can talk to the way you talk to another journalist, mm. not treat like a child, mm. um, you know, on, on the internet. And that's how it always worked. But the dossier, which I, and I agree with you, like I, you know, that you were quoting me accurately there, that that was sort of like my impulse is what I just said. Mm. It's also, that's a very specific case. And I do think that I'm going to kind of defend myself at slightly greater length here. Cause I think that, you know, what, what, all that said, I would never have, if you just emailed me the dossier, said like, oh, cool, I'm going to tweet this. I haven't checked it out, you know. <laughs> and, and what actually happened was sort of, you know, all these stories are very specific and the details matter a lot. And we had gotten a hold of it. Unlike other journalists, we, we hadn't gotten it from Fusion GPS. Mm. So we had, the, we had the freedom to do what we wanted with it. Yeah. It wasn't sort of given to us under seal. But of course, we did what everybody else did. We sent reporters to Prague and to Moscow and tried to figure out whether it was true or false, tried to stand things up or knock them down. But what we were starting to see in the U.S. was that everybody in Washington had it. You mm -hmm. know, all the politicians, all the intelligence officials, all the journalists, mm. and um, were acting based on it. You know, they'd written public letters to the top Democrat in the Senate had written a public letter to the head of the FBI saying, we know you have secret bad information about Donald Trump in Russia, we demand you, you know, tell us more. And and then and then CNN reported that it was had been briefed to the president of the United States and the president-elect, Donald Trump, two presidents. Pretty high bar for a document of sort of public import. And also said what the contents were. Said that it, it credibly asserted, based on a report from a re well-regarded Western intelligence official, mm -hmm. that Donald Trump had been compromised by the Russians. To me, at that point, 
And I don't really think you or anybody else is going to disagree with me on that. I don't think this is that controversial. At that point where I'm holding a document in my hands on television and saying, I have this super secret document. It says Donald Trump has been compromised by the Russians. It's really credible. But I'm not going to show it to you because it's going to burn your eyes out. Like mm-hmm. that middle, you, I, I think that not ever reporting it is defensible and that what I did is defensible. I don't think that middle position of where I have in my hand a list of 100 communists in the State Department, but I'm not going to show you the list or defend it yes. is really a defensible position. I think it's it's more than defensible. I think it was a, a public service, and I'm not just saying that to be a flatter. I, I obviously agree, and a judge ultimately <laughs> did find that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think partly because, as you say, a lot of the reportage about Trump Russia was so sort of it was almost written sort of code that that other journalists knew about, but the public didn't really know what was going on. So I think anything that helped reveal more information was a was a good thing. But that brings us on to the the, the political war, the cultural war that come the, the two themes in this book, and the fact that 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 you you're, a lot of what you're describing is this New York quite sort of hip progressive activist scene. And then the, the sort of the scene changes and you go to Breitbart and Drudge and the growth of this also cruel right wing media that was going on at the same time. And that and that the New York scene sort of never really took them very seriously. But then they both turned yeah. out to be as, as powerful as each other. Yeah, I mean, to me, what's to me, the biggest surprise in the reporting was to go back and see that the people who would because, OK, well, just to start. I mean, of course, the the internet was seen and saw itself as left wing in the early aughts because that's who was on the internet. Mm. It was young people. Facebook was for college kids, and so, of course, one would assume that Facebook was a great place to get Barack Obama supporters out to vote. It kind of went without saying, because mm. and it wasn't an ideological statement. That was who was using these platforms. It was like if you're going to college campuses to campaign, you're probably going to get Democrats. What struck me was that that. For a lot of these people in the really early days of this media scene, Huffington Post actually was one of the really key things. It was founded after the 2004 election to help get a Democrat elected in 08. Mm. And that was really explicitly part of the goal. And it felt to a lot of people there at Jezebel too, which was very pro-Obama, that you know the election of Barack Obama was in some ways like the culmination of this world. The power of friendship, and, I think was it. Yeah. And then you see, you know, over the next eight years that everybody else gets on the Internet and that the these tools are just, you know, as well suited as they were to a sort of generational Obama liberalism. They are even better suited to right wing populism that wants to just rip down institutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the real apogee of the whole thing is the election of Donald Trump in 16. Mm -hmm. And then when I went back and was reporting on it, the thing that really struck me was how how like proximate those two scenes were. The guy who created 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's office. Mm. You know, Andrew Breitbart was a co-founder of Huffington Post. Steve Bannon was hanging around Huffington Post in those early days, learning things. Uh, the founder of the Proud Boys, this American extremist group, was the co-founder of Vice. Mm. I mean, these scenes were totally intertwined. And I think the people, like we who were just sort of doing what I think of as kind of mainstream or center-left journalism at the time, thought of ourselves as sort of the main characters. But I think when you look back, it's the people who had the most influence on, you know, the course of the country yeah. were the conservatives. Well, and and they were all pranksters, sorry to use that word again, but they, they were all people with a genius for causing trouble. Is that that's fair to say? Yeah, they were, I mean, almost by definition, anti-establishment. The mm. establishment was print and television and the internet was the alternative. Mm. Um, 
you come into the book about halfway through and you, you sort of talk about it from your work at BuzzFeed. I wanted to ask you, did, did you decide to uh, sort of insert yourself there for a reason? Did you want to sort of set, set the scene of what was going on in digital media first? Oh, no, I mean, I mean, I hadn't, I mean, I, that's sort of where I became at least a secondary character in the story. I mean, I had been, I'd been hanging around in the early aughts in New York, but I'd been covering New York po- local politics and essentially copying the, the technical and sort of stylistic tools from Gawker, mm. first at some local blogs, and then at Politico, mm. but not, I wasn't really part of that world. I mean, I wasn't invited to the parties. I was, I would have liked to have been, and I was sort of curious about it, but I wasn't part of it. And so part of the fun for me actually was going back and investigating this world that I had sort of known about and then later heard all these, you know, stories about from colleagues at BuzzFeed, but um, but hadn't been there. So that's why I wasn't part of it. And you're now, you've got this exciting new company, Semaphore, which I've been following. It's, it's very, very good and, and well done on all that. But I wondered when, when writing this book, were you sort of trying to decipher what's next while doing it and thinking, and, and that's how you came up with Semaphore? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say when I was at the Times, which is the same time I was writing the book, you know, I had this kind of front row seat to everything that was going on. And I guess got to throw stones at everybody else's glass houses every week, but really to see just sort of the moment of very intense change in the media business that did feel a lot like the early aughts, like the sense that the way people are consuming information is changing really fast, that they have a totally different but real set of frustrations with the status quo. I mean, it's superficially a bit like the pendulum is swinging back, I think, Mm. toward an older set of values around wanting an editor to give you some hierarchy and concision and Mm. kind of old print values, although I don't think they're going to be expressed as a daily newspaper. Mm. Um, But yeah, no, certainly, I mean, definitely thinking, sort of of rethinking through these moments of like incredible innovation, actually, along with all sorts of other other things and watching all the struggles of of existing media companies to adapt again Mm. did feel like a, um, yeah, just, just made me realize what a, I don't know, there's an opportunity. Because a lot of people are saying, and I sometimes think it's expressed in hope more than anything else, that we're seeing the the, the death of the social internet. Uh, and a lot of this book is about, you know, how media piggybacked off the social internet or, or almost invented the social internet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that. I mean, yeah. I realise, I don't think, I think that just there's some evidence of it and more other some of its intuition. And, and I don't think you know, that Facebook and Twitter will go away. But I'm also not sure you and I will be looking at them every day in 10 Mm. years. And you can feel that their cultural relevance, political relevance, and certainly relevance to journalism Mm. has faded very, very fast. Again, not to zero. And I think there's, you know, Reddit, for instance, is a great example of a social platform that is huge, amazing, incredibly valuable and useful, not culturally central. And I think there's a, those, like that kind of thing won't totally go away. But but I think consumers have sort of moved away from the notion that, that the best way to get your news is from everyone, everywhere, all at once, screaming at you. And you sound quite sanguine about this. You, you think it's probably a good thing. You know, people, I, I guess I just, I, I think that it feels like that's what people want. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think that there's an impulse to 
yeah, to decide which one's a good thing and which one's a bad thing, which often involves romanticizing the media of the early 2000s that the internet came up in sort of rebellion against, hmm. which was, I mean, as I recall at the time, totally out of touch with the way people actually communicated. It was, you know, basically not on the internet or not understanding the power of the internet and had just botched the single most important story of most of our gen- lifetimes, the Iraq war. Hmm. And so if people felt that it was a little discredited and there was time for something new, that it was to me a very reasonable thing to think. Mm. And, and I think there's always, and particularly in media, I guess, this incredible sort of false nostalgia for the good old days. Yes. I want to ask you, perhaps lastly, we might do a couple more. Do you hate traffic? My own book called Traffic. Do I hate it? No, I really like it. And I think everyone should purchase a copy. <laughs> but there's a line, Nick Denton, I think, says a line. I jotted it down. He says something like, um, traffic makes everyone cynical. Tracking traffic makes everyone cynical. And I think, you know, from my own experience with journalists, traffic drives everyone mad. And I think journalists are all addicted to it and they hate it and love it at the same time. And they also recognise that it's it's a, you know, obviously there are metrics within traffic, but it's not something that you wanted to do when you get into journalism is, is look at traffic charts. See, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I've just been, I'm so native to it. Um, no. But I mean, it's a measure of interest and attention and... You are doing, it's not the only metric, but it's a valuable one. And it, and you can, and, and it's not like before there was this very high quality measure, we weren't all obsessed with lower quality measures around circulation and around a sort of intuition about what people were reading. Mm. Um, because ultimately you are doing this work in the hopes that somebody will read it, not to slide it into a desk drawer. Yeah. And so I think it's, I mean, I think it's, I, yeah. I mean, I think if it makes you cynical to see what people are actually like, then you're just a cynic. Yes. You yes, know, I don't know, I, but I don't. I don't actually find it. I think it's yeah. I think it's interesting and useful, but you have to realize that if you're writing an article about the history of internet media, yeah. that the latest Kim Kardashian revelation is going to get more attention. But if you didn't know that, yeah, like you were really deluded in the first place. And I, I suppose what most people hate about it is how hard it is to monetize, and and how often it can be impossible to monetize it despite huge amounts of traffic yeah and that's a that's a different sort of a business story that is totally real and i think the core kind of mistake of these folks on the early internet was that which some saw which you know was um not me was (laughs) to think it was a commodity and to think wow like i'm getting you know a hundred thousand views a day and i'm getting nine dollars per thousand views from this advertiser with his very rudimentary advertisement at the very birth of this industry Mm. and if you think about it think wow we're going to create much better advertising products and we're going to get way more traffic and we're going to you know we're going to make a lot of money that way Mm. and but that relies on it actually being a commodity and and the the core fact about commodities is they have to be scarce and it wasn't scarce it was unlimited and so the value did not go up it went down and that was, you know, and that was the sort of, you know, undercut. The ability of just sort of purely traffic-based advertising-driven digital media business to be able to afford to do journalism, which is expensive. Mm. Whereas in this sort of post-social internet world that we might be moving into, will it? do you think it will become easier for media companies to extract value if they're good? I mean, I think there are lots of different factors. I mean, I, you know, and I just think it's a complicated business. It's a hard, it's, journalism's always been a hard business. Subscription, you know, the, the birth of digital subscriptions is obviously this incredible, mm. the important return of a really important revenue stream for media companies. But I think 
people are also, there was a sort of sense of like, wow, this is the future. And then people realize, oh, but that they cap out. And actually the thousandth subscriber is more expensive to acquire than the first one. Like all your friends sign up immediately and it gets progressively harder to grow. And then when the economy is good, advertising remains an incredible business. But when the economy goes down, it's a little harder. I mean, I think media news in particular is a tough business. And I think I've learned not to be kind of ideological about the revenue, the business side. And we do, you know, we, we write currently are in the advertising and events business. We'll get into the subscription business. If you are thoughtful about it and do it well, you can have a, you know, a pretty good business. But it's, but I think there was that one of the big mistakes that we made was just taking all this money from venture capitalists who, I'm not sure, it was, I mean, they made it much more than us, to be honest. Like we were the investee, they were the investor, mm. but who, who imagined that media businesses could, you know, multiply their revenue yeah. so much faster than their costs, like a, um, you know, like, like a tech business. And as you said earlier, it's because a lot of rich people looked at traffic charts and thought that they were money charts quite a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that's not just rich people. Working, a lot of people. Look at yeah, them, yeah, probably probably journalists yeah, too. Right, you know? Yeah, they right. There was this sense, oh, wow, like this is going up and to the right. Yeah. Revenue will surely follow. And for, for a little while it did. Yeah. Well, Ben, I think we'll end it there. But thank you very much for coming on. And congratulations on the book. It really is excellent. And I encourage all the Americano listeners to buy it. It's great to talk to you. And I'm, I'm a print subscriber to The Spectator, actually, which well, is a I, you're an fabulous magazine. So of course Thanks, you are. And I'm <laughs> thrilled to be on it. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroze, and the rest of The Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.